Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It's on page 992 of the Pew Bible before you. We have been working our way through uh, Paul's letter uh, to a young minister about healthy church life. What it looks like for the church to be healthy and to behave in a healthy manner in God's uh, family. Uh, when uh, we, we have seen in chapter 1 that he speaks of healthy or sound teaching, life-giving, uh, bone-mending uh, teaching. In chapter 2, he turned to the issue of public worship and even, even issues related to men and women who, uh, when we gather together in the Lord's church tonight, he turns to the issue of church leadership. Church leadership in chapter 3. When preparing this sermon, I started to list uh, various scandals in the American church due to the failings of church leaders. I had thought I might mention a few simply to grab your attention and remind you of how awful uh, it can be in the church. Uh, and the list was very long and very troubling to me. Uh, and then um, because the anecdotes are so many, I realized I don't have to pick on or name any particular fallen minister or any diseases at work in God's church in various places. Our media sensationalizes them. We hear about them more perhaps than we ever had in the Christian world. It has always been the case that there have been hypocrites in the church who say they believe in Jesus but don't and live hypocritically. Likewise, there have always been Christian leaders, ministers, elders, others, who have fallen in the face of temptation and grievously. Uh, It's all too common. It's all so sad. And perhaps you have been touched very personally by that. I don't know. But it is also so unsurprising. Jesus promised that there would be an enemy, that there is one who hates us, that seeks to destroy what Jesus builds, who seeks to tear down the kingdom. He hates the church, and because Jesus is untouchable to him, being God, uh, and victorious upon the cross in the moment when the enemy thought he had Jesus right where he wanted him, but because of that, he has gone to pursue Jesus' people to trample underfoot the church if he can. And so ministers and elders and deacons and all who are visible in God's church have always been special targets of temptation and of the devil's hatred. And so we see um, bodies scattered, as it were, across the landscape of 2,000 years of Christian history. Here in chapter 3, he... Uh, asks us to think about and consider those who lead God's church. He's going to speak tonight of elders. Uh, in the next week, Dr. Bruce will uh, to walk you through Paul's teaching on deacons and others. But tonight we want to think about elders. What are elders and what are the qualifications for being an elder in God's household? Let me invite you to consider that question and, and after we read God's word, I'll tell you a little bit more about why we need to consider that and we'll walk through this passage together. Let me invite you then 
to give attention to God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts and shape our church by it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would be our teacher tonight. We need you. We are insufficient for these things. Who could be sufficient to serve in your kingdom, the Holy One of Israel? We need you to teach us. We need you to change us and shape us, mold us. We need you to guard and protect your church and raise up among her all whom you would have to serve her in these ways. So we pray that this word would bear much fruit in our lives tonight, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, as we said, is writing to Timothy, who is now a pastor in Ephesus. When Paul had last been at Ephesus, And he was saying his parting and very tearful goodbyes because he loved them and they loved him. We learn in Acts chapter 20 that he called for the elders of Ephesus to come meet him uh, down by the bay, as it were, where he was uh, making way by ship. And uh, he met with them, he prayed with them, he warned them, and in Acts chapter 20... He warned them in this way. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, if that was going to happen then, and it still happens now in the household of God, that men arise speaking twisted things and draw people away, uh, then who has the authority in God's church to wield the shepherd's staff that strikes back at the false, uh, that strikes back at the vicious wolves to drive them away? And in what manner might they exercise that authority? What kind of people ought they to be who would take up such a responsibility? And who has the authority, we might say, on the flip side, to wield the shepherd's um, hook that, that pulls back straying sheep and protects them and keeps them from falling off the cliff? Uh, 
Uh, who, who is it that should lead them beside the quiet waters and the green pastures? Or in the language of chapter 2, who is it uh, that should be teaching and exercising oversight in God's church over God's people? The answer you give to that question, whatever your answer is, is what we might call your polity. Your doctrine of church government, your idea of how uh, the church ought to run. Well, God has an idea about that, and he tells us about it in his word. So who is it then? What answer do you give? Who ought to teach and exercise authority in God's church at the highest level? Our answer is and must be Jesus. There is nobody higher in his church. He is king and head of his people. He is the chief and undisputed shepherd of his people. He is our prophet, our priest, our king. He builds his church. He disciples his church. He disciplines his people. He protects his flock. But who is it that ought to teach and exercise authority and get God's church under King Jesus? Paul's answer here is qualified male elders who are called by God and gifted by him to do that work of responsibility. God has not left the decision for this to his community for how it ought to be organized and led. He's told us his church is not a free-for-all. It's not a pure democracy where we all just get together and decide by popular vote how his church ought to be governed. The church is not just a fellowship of believers who like to be together, mingle together, share life together, and enjoy one another. Though I hope that's present in the life of God's church, and I know it is here. But the church is a kingdom assembled under King Jesus. And he has appointed in his church officers, uh, ministers, pastors, teachers, elders, shepherds, even deacons, to take on various responsibilities. And he calls them and he equips them to do this work. So uh, that by way of introduction. And I just want to say, I want to invite your questions about these things. As a young church plant, uh, that's just a mission church work. We don't yet have functioning among us, our own local uh, and congregationally accepted uh, elders and deacons, but we are working towards the day where we do. I'm an elder who functions on behalf of the regional body, the Presbytery, to plant a church in Siloam, but one day, God, may he raise up elders, officers, deacons, and otherwise. And so we need to be praying to that end, We need to be asking the Lord to do that. And uh, if you're a communing member here, one day we're going to ask you to vote for people you believe God has raised up among us to exercise oversight over your soul and to serve you. And so you need to be thinking about these things. We all do. So what is Paul saying here? What is an elder? And particularly what qualifications are needed to be an elder? Those two things. Well, go back to chapter 3, verse 1 here. And what we learn here is that an elder is an overseer. Notice his language. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the word overseer there, and many of your Bibles will have this as a footnote, or it may even be translated this way, 
means a bishop. It's episkopos. It's, it's uh, like the Episcopal Church. That's where they get their name from their form of church government. Church governed by bishops is how they translate it. It's often been translated that way, but a better translation is actually overseer. Elder translates a different word. It translates presbyter. That sounds a lot like Presbyterian church, and it is. A Presbyterian church is a church governed by presbyters or elders. Now, why do I say that an elder is an overseer? Because the two words describe the same person. An elder is an overseer, and an overseer is an elder. And, and that, makes a, that makes an important um, uh, distinction. Uh, and between the ways that various churches around us are organized. The, the bishop, we understand it is not the big kahuna, and an elder is just the little guy serving in some local church who answers to the big kahuna. <laughs> but it's actually the same person functioning in the same office. And let me show you that in the Bible. And it's important that we be clear about these things. Turn to Titus chapter 1, just two books over towards the end of the Bible, Titus chapter 1. At verse 5 and verse 7, notice Titus 1 verse 5, Paul says uh, to Titus, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint what? Presbyters or appoint elders in every town. Now he goes on to list the qualifications they need to have and at verse 7 he says, for an overseer uh, as God's steward must be above reproach. He's, he wants them to, to, him to appoint elders because an overseer. Um, and so uh, he's basically used the words interchangeably. An elder is an overseer. And that's the work he's going to do. If you go back to Acts chapter 20, uh, which I mentioned previously, in Acts chapter 20, when Paul uh, calls the elders of Ephesus together, um, in verse 28, he tells those elders who meet with him what? Be on guard for the flock of which the Lord has made you a what? An overseer. The elders, you need to be on guard because God has made you an overseer. He's made you a bishop. He's made you a pastor. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5, if you want to look there. Elder is a title. It's a phrase used more frequently. It was the term. I mean, why these different words? Elder is the term that the New Testament got from the Old Testament. The Jews had always had elders since at least the days of Moses. When Moses needed help, he appointed elders to help him in the work. The Gentiles, however, didn't use that word. They had the word overseer. And in Gentile cities, municipal officials, city supervisors and administrators were titled overseer. And Paul uses both to describe the same person, the same function. Title, uh, the elder refers uh, probably more, most likely to the dignity of the office. It really means old man, or even it comes from a root for bearded. Uh, and that's not why I wear one. And, uh, and uh, bishop or overseer refers really to what they do. They supervise, they administrate, they watch over and care for, they do that work. So, that being said, Paul says here, 1 Timothy, if somebody aspires to do that, they desire a noble task. Uh, they are 
not to aspire to do it for simply the prestige of having a title so that they can get some, their name on a plaque or be recognized publicly in some way, shape, or form. It's not honorific, but they are to aspire to the work and to the function of serving, to taking on responsibility for the well-being, the spiritual well-being of God's people. It's a good thing to aspire, Paul says. It's not a bad thing to want to do this in God's church. But notice he does not say that every man must aspire to this. It is not required of every Christian man that he must aspire to be an overseer. I have a friend in a small church plant in South Arkansas who, uh, when they formed as their own church with their own officers, he was, he was elected and he agreed to be elected. Uh, he was approved for the work to be called to be an elder. And they just had a few elders functioning. And after some time in that work, he realized that was not his gift, it was not his calling, and it was not his desire. He was at heart and by gifting and by, de- by desire. He was a deacon. He was a servant, whatever deacon means. Dr. Bruce will tell you about that next week. He, w- he knew that he was a deacon. And he received permission and with the approval of the congregation, he stepped into a different role in God's church, and I think very appropriately. Not everybody is cut out to be an elder. Not all are called to be an elder. Not all are qualified to be an elder, nor do all want to be elders. And that's okay. But if anyone aspires to it, Paul says, they desire a noble task. Now what is it that they do as they govern God's church? What are the, uh, well, they govern. What, what are the qualifications necessary to be an elder? Uh, Paul gives us a, a long list here of things. Let, let, me, let me walk you through them, uh, each of them in turn, so that you can think about um, what we need some among us to be and to aspire to be and what we ought to be praying for them and what we ought to be looking for in them as God raises them up. Number one, he says, an overseer, verse two, must be above reproach. To be above reproach does not mean that you are sinless. It cannot mean that. What child of Adam could be sinless in this life? That is not what he means. Uh, If anything, an elder ought to be very aware of his own sinfulness and his own continuing need for his Savior. He'll be able to help you with your struggles with sin if he knows the graciousness of a Savior who saves sinners. But the elder is to be by above reproach. He is to be free from scandalous sins and offensive uh, habits that would lead to serious public criticism. And this is the general category under which the rest of the things are very specific examples of what does it mean to be above reproach. So to be above reproach with regard to marriage is he is to be the husband of one wife. That's his next thing. Or uh, uh, the man of one woman or a one woman man. Uh, the expectation here is that he, if he is married, uh, he isn't polygamous. And uh, we, we wouldn't think we'd even need to say that in America today. But uh, perhaps we're heading in the direction where we need to say this. But certainly in, in other cultures and in other times and places in African cultures... A man might have many wives, three or four wives, and then come to faith in Christ. Now, he can be a member of the church, and he can be saved, and he ought to, 
He ought to deal justly and lovingly with all those he's taken responsibility for, but he is not to be an elder in God's church. But there's more here than just this. He's saying that the married man ought to be faithful uh, to and committed to, even devoted to his bride. He's a one-woman man. He only has eyes for her. Uh, The gospel is producing in him faithfulness to her, that one woman, because in God's gospel, our Savior is faithful to his one bride, the church. And salvation involves transformation and becoming more and more like Jesus himself. And so this elder who's to be an example to the flock of fidelity and loyalty to his bride uh, must be a one-woman man. It's not here that marriage is obligatory, that he must be married, uh, though just very narrow branches of the church have ever taught that idea. The Apostle Paul, after all, uh, was single when he carried out his ministry as an elder. Now, that may be because his wife had died. It may be because his wife had left him. We're not sure. Uh, but he was a single man and an elder. And it is clear It is clear that celibacy is certainly not obligatory. Most elders will be married as most men will one day be married. And they ought to be monogamous, faithful, sexually devoted to their wives kind of men. That's the first thing uh, under specific things. What does it mean to be above reproach? Now, the the, the three next words, sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable, I think all go together in a certain way. He speaks here of moderation, of evenness, um, somebody that doesn't go to extremes of behavior or have unpredictable mood swings that are wild uh, with sudden fits of anger or sharp words, somebody who doesn't fly off the handle here, but who, who keeps his head, and especially in difficult or even tense circumstances. An elder needs to, as Kipling poem put it, keep his head when all those around him are losing theirs. This is what we want in a leader in God's church, right? We want someone leading God's church who won't go nuts every time there's a problem in the church. Uh, You want somebody who can maintain their dignity even as they discover your depravity and bring the gospel to you. And so, uh, so he mentions that. Then he mentions... This elder must be hospitable. If you knock on his door, he has time for you. You aren't viewed as a distraction from what he thinks is his real ministry, as if his books or his study are more important than the people he's studying to preach to. But he ought to be an open and loving man. The word literally means a lover of strangers. Now, that doesn't mean he has to be an extrovert and he can't be an introvert. It does mean he can't be a cold fish. If he's an introvert, he may need to be more consciously intentional about welcoming strangers. And it may wear him out a bit and he may have to catch moments of quiet in order to be rejuvenated. But he he genuinely loves people and warmly welcomes them. He knows That God has loved him when he was an enemy of God and he longs to welcome others into the household of God where God's enemy becomes God's friend. 
And so uh, that's the kind of person he is. He's hospitable. And he's able, he says, or apt to teach. That's the next thing. If he can't teach, he shouldn't be an elder. Now, it may be that he's not the kind of guy who wants to or has any comfortability with or even much experience with standing in front of a crowd and lecturing or preaching or teaching large groups. It may, that may not be his gift mix, but he needs to be able to explain and apply God's word and gospel to people. And he might be able to do that better over a cup of coffee or a meal in his home than, you know, up front. But he needs to be capable. As Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So he needs to be apt to teach. Then Paul goes on to say, verse 3, he is not a drunkard or he's not addicted to wine. That's not an absolute prohibition from an elder enjoying the fruit of the vine, enjoying the wine that makes glad the heart of man, even the best wine like the wine that Jesus himself made to celebrate a wedding. But it does mean an elder needs to know his own limits and he doesn't get out of control. He isn't a drunkard. He doesn't get drunk. He's not addicted. And then he goes on to say he's not violent, but gentle. And he's not quarrelsome, but peaceable. Those are the next things on his list. You don't want an elder who's ready to punch you, right, if you sin, either against that elder or against others in the congregation. You don't want a guy who's ready to pick a fight, who's a bully or trigger happy. But he's gentle. You know that you can talk to him about your troubles and your temptations and even your failings. And he'll listen and he'll be kind and he'll be gentle even if he needs to confront you. You don't want an elder who likes to fight over words or stir up trouble with words or push people's buttons to get a rise out of them. He's not quarrelsome. The gospel is producing in him the kind of self-talk that says, Jesus forgave me. I can forgive you your sins against me. Jesus is patient with me. I can be patient with you in the midst of your sins. Jesus made peace with God for me. So I can be a peacemaker with you and bring you to Jesus. That's the kind of person you want here. Now he goes on to say in another thing that he is not a lover of money. And that probably reflects Jesus' own teaching in Luke chapter 16 verse 13 where Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so the elder among us is not to love things and use God, but like for all of us, Lord willing, we love God and we use the good things that he's given to us. Notice that it does not say the elder must be poor. The issue is not how much he owns. The issue really is how much of the elder does the money own. His possessions he ought to hold with an open hand. 
He knows it's all a gift from God. He is a steward of it, and he looks for opportunities to be generous because he's not grasping at it. He's not in it for gain. Then at verse 4, he goes on to say that he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive and under control. Now, why is that? For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So if, if he's married and if the Lord gives him children, his family isn't a train wreck. And if it's a train wreck, it's a safe assumption that he will make a train wreck of the church too. Um, having a family is, in many respects, training ground for service and responsibility in God's greater family. A father who will not discipline and deal with his children is unlikely to be counted on to, to discipline or deal with wayward Christians. The guy's got to have some backbone. He's got to show a willingness, not an eagerness, but a willingness to do the hard thing, to say things nobody else wants to say. And after it's been said, he's got to be willing to be unpopular for saying it. And so uh, he, um, he needs to be able to manage his own household well. Now Paul goes on just a couple more things. He says he must not, verse 6, be a recent convert. Uh, or he'll become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Or the condemnation incurred by the devil. That's taken in a variety of ways. Have you ever noticed in... in uh, in our celebrity culture where we're just so enamored uh, with um, people who have fi- even five minutes of fame, that, that when somebody comes to faith in Christ, they make some kind of public profession of faith in Jesus, and they're, they're somewhat well-known, whether they're a politician or they're a famous athlete or a movie actor or actress or something, that one of the first things evangelical Christians do is they, they basically call the person up and they say, you know, come to our church or come to our meeting and give your public testimony, you know, as, as, as if to put them in the spotlight because, hey, they're famous and popular and maybe that will help draw other people to Jesus. And then do you ever follow up on those? And, and so often, whether it's a year later or two years later, you hear that this person who made this wonderful profession of faith in Jesus has suddenly fallen into terrible immorality or they've totally reneged on their profession of faith in Jesus. And they, they've begun to say, well, I don't believe that. and I don't believe that. and I don't believe that. They're trying to maintain their celebrity status and their likability with the public. Christians, Paul says, the church, Paul says, must not do that to people. We shouldn't treat people that way. We shouldn't. New converts are vulnerable. And we shouldn't expect that that's how God does Gets his ministry done. You need experienced people, mature people, not new converts doing this kind of work in God's church. It doesn't mean the man has to be of a certain age. Paul doesn't say he's got to be 28 or 35 or 50 or 70. But he's got to be spiritually mature and tested. He needs, in other words, to know himself well enough to know that you shouldn't be impressed with him. And he doesn't want you to be. He wants you to be impressed with Jesus. And then he's not tempted to be a Lord in the church. Because he knows he's been called to be a servant. He doesn't consider any work of service to be beneath him. But a new convert given too much responsibility and too much publicity too soon is likely 
likely to become proud and arrogant and think service is beneath him. He needs, he needs as well, we might say, to have grown long enough as a Christian to know that he is nobody's Messiah, nobody's Savior, nobody's Lord, that only Jesus can be that for you. Now, that's a constant temptation for people who, who preach the gospel, who pastor souls. It's a constant temptation of mine to think I can fix you or I can be the one who will really help you or I'll be the one to jump in and rescue you at just the right moment or whatever it is, foolishly thinking I am capable when I am incapable. And only God is able. And so you need elders who have the kind of maturity to know this about themselves. Then, Lord willing, they won't think too highly of themselves. Now, the last thing Paul says in verse 7 is this. They need to have a good reputation with outsiders. Moreover, verse 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. He needs to have a good reputation, whether that's with local non-Christians, neighbors, or uh, perhaps even here in some respects, you know, members, we certainly could say members of other churches in the community. Uh, Paul knows that the front line of evangelism as the church goes out into the world, is not our technique, it's not our program, it's not our gimmick, our strategy, or our plans. The front line of evangelism is our personal relationship with non-Christians. And we need to be the kind of people, our elders need to be the kind of people who treat our neighbors well, who love them, and our neighbors know in some way that they've been treated justly and lovingly by the Christian elder. If our neighbors or our co-workers or our fellow students consider us to be the most unfriendly and unjust and unloving people, why would they be interested in our God? Now, they may not like our message about the need to be saved from sin. That's certainly true. But we want the stumbling block there not to be our personal offensiveness. But the natural, we might say, offensiveness of Jesus, who says, you must receive me to be saved. So these are, in a long list, I realize, some of the qualifications, uh, or at least I've commented in some ways upon the qualifications of elders. We ran through the list rather quickly. We could have broken this text into multiple parts and taken many weeks. But I suspect in God's providence, though I have no idea when, That someday in the nearer rather than the longer term future, and I don't know when that is, the Lord will bring us together and raise up among us elders and deacons. And and we'll need to look again at texts like these and other ones to look at the qualifications. So let me conclude with just uh, two words to two different kinds of people. First, if you're a member of the congregation, you do need to be looking around and asking yourself, is the Lord raising up men preparing some men for this office among us. Because we don't know when, but it could be sooner rather than later. And we need to make, especially on the front end of a church, we desire to be here a hundred years from now, faithful to the gospel. We need to make, by God's grace, good decisions together about who has these qualifications. Lord, we need to be praying, give us shepherds like this. Then the second thing I would say to all of us is this. Don't get the wrong impression from this sermon and from Paul's teaching here. 
Paul is talking about qualifications for service as an elder, not qualifications for being a Christian. We do not rest our hopes of forgiveness and our hopes of eternal life upon our own performance or our own ability to match all of these qualities spectacularly. Our efforts are too pathetic for that, and God's standard is too high and holy for us to get to heaven or to get forgiven that way. Only Christ could meet the perfect standards of God, and he did meet them and in our place and on our behalf. And that's why faith is such a big deal in the Christian religion, because faith is confidence placed in another. It's confidence placed in in the promise and performance of somebody else, in this case, Jesus Christ, because not one of us is good enough for salvation. Therefore, we need a Savior. May Jesus be ours, and may he give his church godly elders who know they need him and who know him and walk with him in these ways. Let's pray. Father, We look to you to guide and protect, defend, and build your church. And we ask that you would raise up among us godly servants, men and women, to serve you in many ways. Especially tonight we pray for godly men qualified to be uh, elders uh, among us. To teach us, to call us back to you to watch over our souls for our good. Do it, we pray, for the glory of Christ and for our well-being. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing and call upon him in prayer.